welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. On this episode of Right Medicine, my guest is Dr. Eve Wilson, a medical writer with deep expertise who helped me get started in the field. While Eve is primarily a creator of continuing medical education resources, she also holds a PhD in microbiology and uses her analytic background to inform her current day work. Eve presently works at Platform Q Health, where she's exploring new conceptions of medical learning and their integration into the more traditional didactic experiences, something that Eve describes as making a meaningful journey for the learner so that they develop new insights as a result of their learning experience. In this episode, we talk about career origins and the significance of story in a seemingly facts-only field. We talk about the creation of curricula and how to find balance in the variation of content and format. Eve reviews a current focus area of investigation, the creation and implementation of multimodal ways of learning. And we talk about other things too, how Eve got her start in medical writing and what she tells aspiring writers, how she does prep work for continuing education projects, and how to gauge audience needs and adapt content accordingly. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Write Medicine. Hello and welcome. This is Right Medicine and I'm your host, Alex Housen, here today with Eve Wilson. Welcome, Eve. Thanks for having me. So as has become the norm for this podcast, let's talk a little bit about how you ended up in the field of continuing healthcare education. And I should say I've really started to call this field continuing healthcare education. I know there's a lot of different names and titles out there mm -hmm. for this field. So maybe you can speak to that as well. So I first got into the continuing medical education would have been what we strictly called it when I started in the field. But that was back early 90s when I first got in. And I had come from a background of being a scientist and a researcher, because I have two degrees in microbiology, of all things, and from sort of finding my way from the lab bench, which I didn't like very much, to something I thought I could be better at, which actually I think I was really pretty good at what I was doing, but I just wasn't very happy at it. So I went to medical writing on the, it's a complicated story how I got there, but I knew it was something I could do well, and I was well suited to do and bopped around in a couple of jobs and then took a job as a medical editor at a medical education company. And that's how I wound up in CME. And I've been around in different work settings. I've been in freelance for a while. I've worked for a specialty society, not in a writing capacity though. And I currently work for a medical education company. So I've kind of been around the block and come back home or something. 
I love that. And so, and I should say that you and I first met uh, when I actually <laughs> took a course that you, a workshop that you taught yep. at the American Medical Writers Association mm-hmm. on writing in uh, CME. And you've taught aspiring education writers about developing CME content mm-hmm. for a number of years. What are the key questions that you get from writers about creating quality content? Well, it's interesting because the hardest question I ever get asked is, how do you write medical education? You know, teach us how you write it. My response to that is, you just sit down and write. <laughs> you know, I, it's, a, it's a hard thing to explain. And then the other question that I get frequently is not related to quality of writing is, is how do I get into CMU writing? Um, it's not an easy field to break into. You know, I haven't taught that course in a while, but when I did, I tried to teach the basics, you know, create your outline, think through your content, do your research, do those kinds of things and just dig in. That's kind of how I work. And I don't know if that's how you work as a writer as well, but sometimes I just jump in feet first, honestly, and approach the topic sort of like by immersing myself in it and really understanding it so that I can write about it. Um, I don't like to think of what other writers do as mistakes. I think it's more what I've observed, at least through the writers I've met through AMWA, is they come from so many different areas of writing, from regulatory to, you know, academic type of writing. And it's very different approach, I think, to do CME. So I think that that sort of transition and that getting their heads around how to do it is what probably people who have taken that course struggle the most with and, you know, ask the most questions about. It's just a very different approach to writing to me with some notable exceptions because we've all done manuscripts, for example, probably at some point. I really want to dig into some of the things that you've talked about. The first is actually going back to your response to the first question, which is you thought that you would be suited to medical writing. What do you mean by that? Well, I've always been a good writer. So I knew that from Miss Fitzpatrick in the 10th grade or 11th grade, (laughs) who encouraged me to be a, I wanted to be a writer as a young person. I wanted to write fiction. I don't think I have a capacity for writing fiction. That's a very different thing. I've written a little bit of fiction over the years when I was younger, but I'm better suited to facts. And I also love science and medicine and uh, biology. And so those are all the things I'm passionate about. And I, I can even remember, I thought about this the other day, I remember reports that I got A pluses on. One of them was on the jumping spider, the family saltisted. And then another one was on the California condor. That was Miss Fitzpatrick. She thought that was an excellent piece of work. And you know, it's people like that early in your life when you're trying to decide what direction you're headed in. It may sound corny, but I go back to that when I think about how I ended up on this road and why I like what I do and why I'm passionate about what I do. And so, you know, one of the other things that you talked about was when you're starting a particular project and when you're teaching other people who are interested in medical writing, particularly in continuing education, how to get started. Part of your advice is, you know, dig in, immerse yourself. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what in as granular a way as you can about what that involves. Because I, I, I think I share that. I tend to read really widely mm-hmm. when I'm working uh, on a project, probably much more than maybe I need to, but it helps me to kind of get into the world of the particular 
uh, project. And sometimes I kind of come out the other side feeling like, you know, every every CME project is a mini PhD. <laughs> exactly. And I think, you know, I just have to say that sometimes how much time I spend on that sort of prep period depends on how much time I have, because obviously this is a very fast paced world that we live in, me personally, um, where we're, we're pushing content out that's, you know, very timely and therefore very deadline driven. So sometimes the prep work I would like to do, I don't always have time to do. But I, I think what the benefit that we often have in the CME world is if, if we're working on the implementation side, by which I mean, if we're writing educational pieces or uh, slide sets for a physician to speak to or different aspects of an educational program, we usually have as a resource the grant proposal, which is somebody else's mini PhD that they because they developed it as a needs assessment where they had to really dig in. So a lot of times that's the starting place for me, just getting a better idea of what the topic is you know, what the scope of the project is, what are all the pieces, what is the need behind the education? It is always important to think about what's driving the need for that education. What deficit is there on the side of the clinician who's trying to treat a patient with a complicated illness? And the needs assessment and the grant proposal also has learning objectives that we're pretty much wedded to having to go by more and more. It used to be we could tweak them and very few people tweak their learning objectives anymore. As as far as I can tell, it's sort of considered part of the scope of the project, if that makes sense. So those, I've always thought of the learning objectives of sort of 100,000 foot view of what, you know, the outline for the program is. So that's sort of a basic outline. And then you always have to consider you know, who are you writing for? Are you writing for experts? Are you writing for nephrologists? Or are you writing for primary care? Because those are very different kinds of level of content that you have to hit. Or sometimes you're writing for both, depending on the program. And one might be, you know, your primary and one might be your secondary audience. But I always actually kind of keep it in mind that for most of our programs, almost all of them have primary care physicians or primary care clinicians participating. Not that I necessarily accommodate that if it's, you know, supposed to be a program for experts, but but I do keep it in mind. And then, you know, I never want to come across that I can do this on my own. So we are always working with experts. And I have had the privilege to work with some pretty brilliant experts in developing content. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a clinician. I don't go into the clinic writing things like case studies. For me personally, I can come up with a decent draft, but I really need the insight from the faculty that we have involved. It varies how dependent we are on the faculty in terms of developing the content. A lot of times it's a first draft and then they react or sometimes they send us a bunch of slides and we create from there. But it's always at that interaction at some level. And then, you know, you do what research you need to to build that story, right? Whatever your educational story is going to be. And for me, that's streams of consciousness searching on Google and PubMed. And you know, sometimes I'm doing it as I'm going along. Sometimes I'm reading a review paper first to, you know, kind of get to the, you know, the big picture of, of what that disease or condition might be. And then I'm checking references. I'm tracking down the pivotal clinical trials. I'm looking for all those things to fill in the blanks, essentially, between, you know, what we've got from our faculty and what we're trying to reach to the end. From there, it kind of really depends, I think, on what it is you're trying to produce. 
if it's going to be a set of slides and the faculty is going to speak to it, then that is sort of a self-limited kind of exercise. But very often there's more to it. Um, for example, where I'm working now, they in integrate a lot of what they call the patient voice, which is something that adds a, you know, a great element of engagement for, to me, any, any kind of medical education, um, because that's who what it's really all about, right? But you have to sometimes think with the crystal ball in mind if you don't have all your pieces together, like there's not a patient interview set up yet, or the patient is still being selected, or um, if the doctor's going to bring the patient to you, but he hasn't had time to contact them. So you're trying to think all the time with, well, how are you going to fit all these pieces together? And how are you going to make it work? So there's a lot to pick up on there. The first couple of things that I'm hearing really strongly are, you know, they need to be really kind of clear about who the audience is. Mm -hmm. And you talked a little bit about that. What strategies do you use to kind of differentiate between writing for experts and writing for primary care physicians are experts in primary care, but if they're managing patients with, you know, an, an unusual condition, they're not necessarily experts in that condition. Right. So how do you kind of differentiate that you know, writing for experts versus writing for a more kind of general need to know, mm -hmm. but need to know less basis? Yeah. I mean, I think it's all about complexity of the content, like what level of detail that you go to. So when you are writing for, I used the example of nephrologists earlier, which is an incredibly complicated area of expertise. And I think nephrologists, neurologists, dermatologists, ophthalmologists, they, they're at a level where I think, and cardiologists, I'm just thinking of the projects I've done in the past couple of weeks, they're at a level where they want to hear about things like the mechanism of action of a particular medication or, you know, the, the granular details of the clinical trials and, the, you know, what primary outcome, how significant was the change and that kind of thing. I think that for primary care, they really want to focus on what is sort of the bottom line. What, what does it mean for them? What does it mean for them when they get into the clinic? So that's sort of a compare contrast. So I would get much more granular and much more into the specifics of the science, the biology, and, you know, the details of the clinical trials with the experts versus we might give, you know, some of that, of course, for the primary care audience, but they want to know how to apply it more. And so I would say that is probably fundamentally a difference that I see. Um, of course, the experts also are t treating patients and want to be aware of that. So we have, it's a spectrum, in other words. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Actually, I, I was interviewing a, an oncologist yesterday for a qualitative research project, and that's exactly what he said. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a community oncologist, and he basically, we were talking about a particular drug, and he said, I'm not really interested in the mechanism of action. I need to know how to manage the toxicities. That's where mm -hmm. I am. Okay. So, you know, that kind of applies perspective, which leads me to a second question about how do you get into the perspective and the shoes of the clinician? So the person in the clinic who is actually, you know, managing patients in the day-to-day -day situation. Well, the, the best link to that is a carefully constructed case study to me, because then you are thinking from the patient's point of view. And I don't know if it makes sense to say that, but a lot of work I've done over the years it has been as much building content around a case as it is 
building a case into the content. And sometimes building the content around the case is really a way to get into the head of the clinician, but also think in terms of what the patient's experience is. And like when I say build around that, I mean, you have to walk through the patient's story, but you have to bring in the facts of, you know, the treatments and the, you know, the facts of the diagnostic strategy and the facts of the you know, what the symptoms are and what is the best management and what are the mistakes in management and what are contraindications and, you know, are there clinical trials for patients who have certain rare conditions and, you know, sort of keep that all in mind as you're creating this educational piece. So it comes kind of layered with details that sort of build on the story of the case, but also build the educational story. And I use that story quite a lot when I talk about writing because it kind of helps talk about writing. (laughs) It's interesting because, you know, people who come on the podcast often do talk about the power of story as, Mm -hmm. you know, the glue that is kind of holding together all the different, Mm -hmm. sometimes disparate pieces of an education activity or or a program. So I do want to kind of come back around to story, but I am struck by, you said at the beginning of the conversation that, you know, fiction is a different beast Mm -hmm. from writing about facts. And yet when we're writing education content for continuing medical education, continuing healthcare education, we're actually having to use our imaginations an incredible amount in order to kind of make that leap into the shoes of the clinician and the patient. And so for people who come from a bench background, who perhaps are drawn to this field because of the science, how can they begin to build those story-making and imagination-using skills? I don't know if I can answer that question. It's it's a soft skill, right? It's hard to explain how I go about doing that. It's more of a process that I go through. So I think that one of the things, as someone who you know was trained as a scientist, personally, I was also trained as an analytic thinker. And I think that that process of thinking analytically, like the whole idea of what is your hypothesis and, you know, how are you going to set out to test it? And what are the data that you're going to gather around that are fundamental to the way that I think about almost everything, not, you know, that consciously, but the powers of observation and just attention to detail. Maybe I'm, I'm intuitively like that, but I was also trained to do that. And I think that goes a really long way in pulling together the multiple components that you need to create an effective educational piece. You know, it's hard to explain, but it's knowing what to include, knowing what not to include, uh, following a certain logic, you know, bringing together the elements that work and recognizing which ones don't. Sometimes it's just a matter of the, the specifics of the program, and sometimes I don't have any control over what those elements are, but sometimes we're trying to make things work that don't necessarily work well together, and we still have to try to do that. But I think it's more about that kind of having that background of just sort of moving logically and methodically and analytically through the process of pulling things together. And I think that's reassuring for people who are thinking about mm-hmm. you know, making a transition into this kind of work mm-hmm. that there are, I mean, all the skills that you kind of 
mention in relation to analytic thinking are things that you can learn. Mm -hmm. And your comment about making that sort of imaginative bleep as a soft skill. Actually, I think you could probably argue that people who are trained in visual and textual arts, do we call them textual arts, writing, you know, people who who maybe have done sort of, you know, English or English lit uh, Mm -hmm. as their kind of undergraduate degree, have that training in imaginative thinking and, Mm -hmm. but also in analytic thinking, right? If you're parsing out text and. Right. Right. And it's interesting because I don't think I've ever thought quite the way about it as you do as as a imaginative process. But of course it is. I just never really thought about it that way before. It's an an interesting perspective on it because it is. You have to know what works to pull together. And that means thinking in a way that, you know, may be different for every single project, right? Sometimes it feels like (laughs) that for sure. (laughs) Definitely. So you talked about um, knowing how to kind of pull all the multiple components together. And some of that you get from experience, right? Mm -hmm. And and also making and I will use the word mistakes, I know that I'm better now, you know, almost 20 years in Mm -hmm. to this particular kind of work in being able to identify what's necessary, what's extraneous than I was, you know, at the very Mm -hmm. beginning or or even, even a decade ago. So that experience and being able to kind of have the kind of experience across different kinds of projects and, and different kinds of goals is kind of important. Yeah, I agree. You're working increasingly, it seems, with developing multimodal content. Can you talk about what that is and what some of the challenges are that you see in developing this kind of content? Definitely. It's, you know, we we work in a very competitive field and particularly so if you're working in a medical education company um, environment, that there's a lot of competition out there to always have the greatest new program or platform or innovation is the name of the game. And and sometimes that really means lots of different elements organized in a way that are like adaptive learning is one where that that's typically a platform where you pull in different elements that all have to fit together, but take the learner through, you know, there's science behind that of a process of learning and showing that they've learned and demonstrating what they've learned and self-assessing and, you know, this sort of cycle of of things that we do when we learn. So that's one approach that it's kind of its own thing, but sometimes we even combine, you know, I like to go back to this list that I keep, uh, you know, all the descriptions of education. So uh, there's the AMA PRA categories of medical education, right? And then um, ACCME has some categories as well for medical education, we used to think in terms of live activities and enduring activities. And there's also you know, more didactic stuff like journal-based CME and, you know, things like that that are sort of like cut and dried. But, you know, in recent years, both ACCME and the AMA have added a category of other to their, you know, list of seven or eight things. Right. You know, new instructional practices, blended new or established learning formats, New technologies such as simulation, adaptive e-learning, virtual reality, gamification, social media. And, and so, you know, I've, I think I've worked in programs that have often combined, you know, multiple of those, like four or five, including I remember doing an all day program that involved like a, an icebreaker, but it was a learning experience in the morning 
and it went to a, you know, a game and then there was a didactic session and then there was a case exploration. And so having all of these pieces come together in a way that's not just um, willy nilly, Mm. but in a way that's meaningful, Mm -hmm. logical, and brings the learner through a sequence of, you know, activities where they're building as they go along. And that's how the activity is structured to build over the course of the day. And, you know, they're not always all day programs, but that's just one of the more complicated ones I could think of. And then in any given, you know, activity that I'm doing in my current position, I have to think with the idea that we're going to at minimum pull in polling questions as an interactive element at minimum. And then we will very likely have a case that's built through the activity with questions attached to the case, which may or may not be polling questions. And we might have a live patient or a patient caregiver coming in that is completely different from the case, but still needs to be brought in in a way that makes sense and is placed properly so that you are building, again, building that story from beginning to end and making it a meaningful journey for the learner so that they come out on the other end with something new. Mm -hmm. So those are just a couple of examples of what I mean when I say multimodal. Mm -hmm. There are other names for it. Micro learning is one I hear all the time because I feel like micro learning are little short spurts of learning, right? Right. But a lot of what we do in multimodal learning is really combinations of micro learning activities, right? Yeah, no, I think it's a great way to think about it. I'm sure that there are people out there that would probably argue with me a little bit on the definition of microlearning and what that really means. But I just offer it as one perspective on when you are putting together these activities where you're trying to take a learner through different steps and different stages and different experiences in one, mm-hmm. a- sometimes one hour activity. So I think it's interesting. So I definitely want to have have an episode on microlearning on the podcast because I'm, I, yeah, it's obviously you know, kind of flavor of the season to mm-hmm. some extent, but, and also speaks to, you know, attention span. And so yeah. in your description of multimodal learning, there's a lot going on there. What are you hearing about the potential for cognitive overload as a learner being exposed to, because as a writer, you're kind of in cognitive overloads all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but as a learner, you know, being kind of, you know, invited to interact with so many different kinds of activities mm-hmm. in certainly if it's a one day thing or a half day mm-hmm. thing in a fairly condensed space of time, if the learner can parse that out a little bit and, you know, do that interaction over time, then that's a different mm-hmm. issue. But is that something that you're hearing much about or? Well, I think you have to, and I'm not always on the designing side of what the program's going to be, but I do have strong opinions about, you know, how much you want folks to do, like in a one-day program, I think it's a good idea to mix in, you know, if you're going to have games, don't have it all be games, but have games and interspersed with some, you know, more traditional approaches. Or if you're attacking a really complex topic, you know, break it up into chunks, break it into digestible bits and teach some of it via case study and teach some of it just didactically, you know, didactics almost become a dirty word in, in medical education, I think, sometimes. Mm. But I think that there's a value to it because it's just the nuts and bolts. And sometimes if you've got people heavily involved in, you know, sort of this active learning of choosing a card for the correct 
diagnosis or, you know, working through a kind of a game scenario that you might want to give them a little bit of break of something a little more traditional before you move on to the next sort of innovation or whatever it is you're doing in your program. That's just a thought. I don't know the science behind that. I just know that it's like you said, you, it's a lot to have people to jump from one thing to the next thing to the next thing um, without some sort of break. And, and of course, people do need a little bit of downtime if you're doing that. So you do have to build in that quiet time for people to either take a break or interact with one another in a way that may not necessarily be committed to the education itself but just an opportunity to interact. Rest and recovery, absolutely. Yes, because otherwise it's just going to be a deluge. Mm-hmm. I love the French pronunciation there. <laughs> well, how do you say it? <laughs> In a very Northern European deluge oh, okay. kind of way. <laughs> no. the, right. the Scottish way isn't necessarily the right way, for sure. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right way. <laughs> well, it sounds good. It sounds good. <laughs> we'll go with deluge. I like that. It sounds, it's soft in the ears, gentle in the ears. So just kind of sticking very briefly with multimodal education and all the different components that you've been talking about. If you're the writer working on a multimodal project with lots of different pieces to it, there's a lot to keep track Mm -hmm. of. So do you use any strategies or tools to help with, I guess, with that tracking and management Mm -hmm. process? I do have tools. I do not always use them. I have to say, um, like I said, I can be a very feet first kind of person. I don't know if that makes sense, but I have a strong tendency to just to jump right in and start mushing things together and mushing them back out. It's sort of like, um, it almost is like, it's almost like painting a little bit. Like you make a sketch and then you add the layers and then you go back and you, know, you move things and then you uh, take it away and you get the linseed oil out, you know, you wipe the canvas dry. It's not quite that involved, but you know what I'm saying? So it's that process. But I also like to use, when I can, content mapping, which basically is just a, it's just a big chart that gives you the big picture of what are all the pieces and I can send it to you. It would be great to include that if you're happy to share. And, you know, this is not original to me. It's a fairly commonly used tool from my experience. So basically it's a big table. The column on the far left has got Tactic one, tactic two, tactic three, and, you know, three different rows and so forth. And then a little description of what that is. And then on the top row, it's there's the learning objectives in one column and there's key takeaway points in the next column. And then I even put in there when I can get it, you know, number of pre-post questions, you know, that will go with each section, like if it's all one thing. So that way everything maps to the learning objective you know, the tactics map to the learning objectives, map to whatever is the key teaching points that you want to get from there. And they also map to, hopefully, this isn't always easy thing to do, a particular assessment question, either I say pre-post, but it could be other questions on evaluations, which is a whole topic we haven't discussed at all so far. Currently in the my current position, I haven't used this, but I have used this in the past on faculty calls because it helps me organize what I need from them in terms of getting them up to speed on what we're looking for. You know, if we're asking for content from them, it helps us to assign it out, but it also keeps track of every little bit, right? So it's all in one place and everything has a purpose. It sounds very visual. Yeah, it's it's actually quite straightforward. Yeah. 
No, I think that would be great to uh, include in the show notes for people who might be kind of relatively new to the field. So a couple more questions before we wrap up. One is you talked about pre-post questions that we haven't really kind of touched on that. Do you want to talk about that in terms of the writer's role in developing outcomes questions? Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of a less appreciated aspect of what medical writers have to do or as part of their job. And the reason I say that is one of the hardest thing I have to do is write pre-post questions. One of the hardest things I do, honestly. Agreed. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, and I've also done some training, uh, even faculty training of, I'm sure a lot of people know some of the basic fundamentals of how to write a good test question. And Board of Medical Educators Guide is a great resource for that uh, with examples. I, I believe I got that right. And it's hard. And it's hard sometimes because you're working sometimes with the skeleton of the content and not the actual content. You know, if you're doing a slide set and you have to write pre-post questions that are supposed to be linked to learning objectives from the grant so that you can assess changes in knowledge or competence, those kinds of outcomes that we have in evaluations, you know, again, this could be a whole topic on itself, but it can be really challenging, you know, if, if what you have is a set of 40 slides mm-hmm. and you have to write, you know, four or five pre-post questions that are not too easy, not too hard, linked to your learning objectives. You have to tick a bunch of boxes when you write those. And so, you know, I, I often get a request, of, oh, can you get us the pre-post questions, you know, today? And I'm like, I need four or five hours to write sometimes four or five questions. And, and that may seem Maybe other people are faster than I am, but it also depends on what content I have to work with and how deeply I know the topic area. Yeah, I would agree with that. It takes time to write those questions because you mm-hmm. may have that skeleton content, but also mm-hmm. you need to you need to think about all the nuances and the different ways in which the question could be interpreted. And right. if it's multiple choice, what the, the relevant distractors are. And mm-hmm. if you're also having to write a rationale for mm-hmm. the question, yeah, for me, that's probably longer than an hour of question, <laughs> I have to say. Um, but I agree. I think it's probably a, a separate topic because there's mm-hmm. so much associated with that. Right. And I think it's a hugely increasing emphasis of medical education to have created those evaluations that measure all of the things that, you know, required by ACCME standards, but also increasingly the people who support education, the people who provide us grants are increasingly concerned about the quality and the levels of outcomes that they are getting from their education. And I think that's because there is pressure on them to demonstrate to other people, you know, at the supporter side, the legitimacy of medical education, you know, it sort of gets to hold, you know, what is the value of it? And there's more and more emphasis, which means to me, we have to pay more and more attention to the quality of what we're doing. And so in that vein, what are some of the best resources that you've seen to help writers in particular get the support they need to develop their skills to write quality content for continuing medical education, continuing healthcare education? I mean, I don't know if I can answer that. I think still American Medical Writers Association offers topics on continuing medical education. I am not 100% certain if they have offered a CME workshop in the last several years. I know there are different courses that have popped up now in academic settings, such as uh, University of Chicago Graham School has 
professional certification on medical writing and editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a couple of other, like University of California at San Diego, I think has a similar type course. Mm-hmm. There might be another one over in Philadelphia somewhere, but I'm pretty sure I'm not really familiar with the content. I'm pretty sure that none of these courses really focus on you know skills for developing pre-post questions i think Mm -hmm. the one at san diego is cme focused i would have to kind of check that out yeah but the very fact that you and i are kind of struggling a little bit to identify yeah you know bona fide resources to support writers kind of moving into this field Mm -hmm. i think is probably itself telling because we're we're both pretty immersed yeah (laughs) I think it's fair to say yeah so that's interesting so I wanted to look it up and make sure I said it properly it's not the board of medical educators it's the national board of medical educators and they have a resource for writing test questions that I have relied on multiple times because I've also had to not only write questions but train faculty to write questions for like self-assessment programs for their various medical associations. And there's sort of two things about that. Writing for self-assessment, that something's going to be used to train medical students or people coming through the medical training cycle at their various institutions. Those kinds of assessments, I think, are written at a higher level Mm -hmm. than is really necessary for day-to-day medical education. But there's a very high standard that's set by the National Board of Medical Educators, but it's also really great advice in terms of just mm-hmm. basic steps of walking through writing test questions. You know, I've had really no formal training as a medical writer other than I was trained as a researcher to write papers and trained in college and even far back as high school, as I mentioned, as, you know, an organized approach to writing and clear and concise writing. Um, I've taken a number of courses through American medical writers that were very helpful in terms of, you know, just the basic writing skills and even, I think, you know, putting together a set of slides as well. Um, It's been a while since I did anything like that because I've been doing it for such a long time. But I think those resources are still there and can very much supplement what it is. There's some basics to writing that applies across all types of writing, in other words. Absolutely. And I think some of that can be learned. Yes. I think that writing is a talent, but it's also a skill that can be trained and improved. Agree 100%. And also, I think it can be really helpful for writers who work in this field to try other kinds of writing and hone skills in other kinds of writing, because there's a cross-fertilization there just in terms of developing your capacity for communication and being really clear about word choice and, and those kinds of things. Is there anything else we haven't touched on that you feel is really important to support quality writing? in continuing healthcare education? I think I will fall back, and I may have already said this, is that the work that we do in CME, it is for me, is a collaborative effort. I am not, like I said this, I am not a clinician. I I do not walk the halls of the hospital unless there's an emergency in my family, God forbid. So I think it's really important to keep that idea that you're collaborating to create the content. It's both a little challenging, but also kind of comforting to know that you don't have to know everything. It also can be really challenging working with some faculty who are, you know, clearly brilliant experts and don't have a lot of spare time. I take it as a personal challenge to impress them with what I can come up with. And that's sort of part of a process for me. But I think one of the things I really do find I like best about medical education or whatever it is we're calling healthcare professional education 
is that I get to collaborate with these really bright people and learn something new every single day. Dr. Eve Wilson, <laughs> thank you for sharing your expertise with us. I've learned from you. I learned from you right at the very beginning of my entry into this field and continue to do so. Thank you. As ever, thank you for spending time with me and Dr. Eve Wilson, who has generously provided a downloadable planning tool for developing multimodal CME. The link is in the show notes. And as always, I'd love to hear what you think about this episode and the podcast in general. In fact, have you heard enough from the podcast? Should we keep going? If we should keep going, which topics would you like to hear more about and who would you like to hear from? You can email me or write a podcast review or complete a wee survey, the link for which is in the show notes. And if you haven't joined the Right Medicine community yet, there's a link in the show notes to that too. And as a thank you, you'll receive downloadable bonus content from the podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine. Right Medicine.